One almost universal feature of osteoarthritis is the experience of pain. Despite that universality, everybody's experience of that pain is usually quite unique. Those symptoms that a person experiences varies from person to person. So some just feel that intermittently associated with certain physical activities, whereas others experience constant and oftentimes nighttime pain. There's lots of different words used to describe that pain, the character of it, the distribution, its location, its severity, and its frequency. There's lots of insights that have been provided by experts in our field, including previous international experts and guests on this podcast. And in an effort to recast some of their wonderful insights and provide you with an overview as to why does osteoarthritis hurt, we're rebroadcasting some of the previous content, including expertise from Jason McDougall, Season 1, Episode 1, Amri Malfay, Season 2, Episode 14, Lisa Kaleso, Season 3, Episode 7, and Tasha Stanton, more recently, Season 3 and Episode 19. We're just providing brief excerpts of their insights, but with a real invitation to you to go back to their particular podcast and dig in a little bit further. I'm hoping that you enjoy this content and learn a little bit more about why you might be experiencing pain in osteoarthritis. So from Jason McDougall, we learned about a framework, a biopsychosocial framework that can help people to understand the origins of pain and osteoarthritis and what are the main drivers of pain, whether that be inflammation, loading, or nerve damage, and also some broad common descriptors of pain, including nociceptive and neuropathic. There are a lot of different frameworks that are out there, but is there a particular framework that you subscribe to that might help our listeners understand where pain comes from? Well, pain is extremely complex. It's, it's not something we like to talk about. And there are many different psychological and social issues that contribute to what we all feel as pain. There are many different types of pain. So pain is not pain is not pain. There's, there's what's called nociceptive pain, which would be, for example, you know, you're touching something hot or you're standing on something sharp, that very immediate alarm system in your body. And that, that type of pain certainly is a component of, of joint pain. When maybe bones are rubbing against each other, it's that alert system that something is not quite right in our joints. Another type of pain is, is inflammatory pain. So where there's inflammation within the joint, various different chemicals are being released into the joint, which can then sensitize those nerve endings in the joint and, and give us that heightened feeling of pain. And then more complicated is, is something called neuropathic pain where there's actual damage to the nerves themselves. And, and we're finding that in patients with osteoarthritis and in some of our models, disease models, those nerves don't look normal. And the fact that they're not normal means that they're responding differently and they're also contributing to, to pain. So it's a, it's a very complicated interplay between these different processes that, that we're interested in. Fantastic. And if a, if a person was, and it's obviously variable between people and within a person themselves, but if we were to try to distill down what the main drivers of that pain are, of the factors that you just spoke about, whether it be inflammation, 
nerve damage, mechanical loading, the psychological and social factors that you talk about. Again, I'm, I'm probably making it hard for you, but if you had to try and identify of those, which is the most important, can you put your finger on it? No, uh, because I think they all play a major, major part. And you're right, a, a different people will have different components to their pain. Some people may have more of this neuropathic type of pain. Other patients might have more of an inflammation, but certainly I, I couldn't put my finger on one being more important than the other. They all contribute to this crazy syndrome that we call joint pain. From Anne-Marie Malfay's episode from season two and episode 14, we learned a lot about different types of pain, but in particular, what was central sensitization and what changes occur within that? And in addition, what changes are occurring in the nerves or neuronal pathways in osteoarthritis. Can you just tell us the difference between peripheral and central sensitization and what actually is changing to occur with the peripheral and sensitization from a biologic functional perspective? So to really grasp that one has to first have a little bit an idea of the very basic template of how pain is sensed. And uh, it's actually a very simple thing. Pain is something that is very important to all of us. It's a basic survival mechanism. It's what tells you that you shouldn't touch a hot flame or, or whack yourself with a hammer, say, because, you know, it hurts and, and you can break something. <laughs> so there are specialized neurons that innervate our skin and the joints, and they they are specifically equipped to detect these potential harmful uh, stimuli, such as high heat, for example. And so these specialized sensory neurons are called nociceptors and are very abundant everywhere in, in the body, especially in the skin, but also in the joints. And they innervate different tissues in the joints. And their cell bodies are, are in the periphery. They are located in specialized organs that are called dorsal root ganglia. And so the cell bodies are there. And so they, they actually basically innervate the peripheral tissue. And they also send an axon, it's called, to the spinal cord, to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And, and there they make a synapse with what's called secondary or second order neurons that then take the pain signal up to higher regions of the brain. So that's the central. So what happens is in just an acute potential harmful situation is that one can touch a hot flame, for example, and there's a very rapid signal in the form of an action potential. So it's an electrical stimulus. So it goes very, very fast. The signal transfers to the dorsal root ganglion and from there to the spinal cord and higher regions of the brain where you can then uh, consciously detect that and interpret it as pain and then very rapidly have a reflex. You withdraw your hand and that's it. Now, in, in, when you have a, a more chronic disease, such as osteoarthritis, where you have ongoing changes in the joint and in different tissues in the joint, is that you have continuous, what's called continuous peripheral nociceptive inputs, so continuous pain triggers that go, there's, there's a constant barrage. And so what happens is that the pain signal gets amplified, actually, and this can happen in the periphery. So that now means that there are changes in these, in these dorsal root ganglia so that the, the threshold for activation of these neurons lowers. 
So we are all very familiar with that. For example, in the case of sunburn, when, when you have sunburn, when you normally touch your skin, that doesn't hurt. But when that skin is burned by the sun, that really hurts. So that's called, that's actually peripheral sensitization because these nerves there are sort of on high alarm and and they tell you so again this is a, a really protective mechanism because what it what it does it makes sure that you don't keep rubbing that skin that is sunburned and so you actually allow that skin to heal so again it's a protective mechanism now when it all takes too long and it keeps going then you start also having really profound changes in the central nervous system. And this can happen at different levels. It, it happens in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, but then it can also start happening higher in the brain at different levels of the brain. And that's what's then called central sensitization. And in some instances, and it's not very clear yet when this particularly happens and to whom that particularly happens, but so it can happen, actually, that this constant input from the joint and the peripheral input versus the central sensitization mechanisms are uncoupled. And then those are probably unfortunate for, for people where this happens, where there's this uncoupling and there's no obvious connection anymore between the pain and what's really going on in the periphery. That's a fantastic explanation. Hopefully helps people to understand where their pain may be coming from. Now, in the context of osteoarthritis, whether it be through changes in the periphery or centrally, are those changes reversible? I think that we have a lot more evidence. So first, I would like to say that in osteoarthritis, the good news is that in the vast majority of people, it would appear that the main driver of chronic pain comes from the periphery. The main drivers come from the periphery. So the best argument that one can make for that is that if somebody has very bad knee osteoarthritis and they get a new knee, they get total knee replacement, that in the vast majority of people, around 80% of people, that actually effectively takes away the pain. But not just that. So one can detect measures of or signs of peripheral and central sensitization can be detected, as I talked about earlier with the quantitative sensory testing. So if people have these lowered pain pressure thresholds we talked about, is that it's also becoming clear that if one takes away the diseased, so to speak, joints, that these measures are also reversible. And there's some very uh, interesting work that has been done where people do brain imaging and they have really seen that people with chronic pain and people with chronic low back pain, people with knee osteoarthritis can have real changes that can be detected in specific regions in the brain by, say, by functional MRI. And here again, these changes are actually often reversible. From Lisa Kalesa's episode, season three, episode seven, we have a lot of insights about different pain patterns or phenotypes of osteoarthritis, and in particular, why those different types of pain occur and in what stage of disease, what the mechanisms might be underlying those different patterns of pain, and why some people are more likely to experience constant pain. Now, everybody's different who has and experiences osteoarthritis, but there are lots of different descriptors that are used for that pain. 
in the work that you and others have done, what are the different types of pain that are experienced by people with knee osteoarthritis? Yeah, so a few years ago, it was actually Dr. Dr. Jillian Hawker out of the University of Toronto here, conducted many focus groups with people with knee osteoarthritis and asked them to describe their experiences. And from that study, they were able to say that people described intermittent pain, constant pain, or a mix of the two. And they further related those descriptors to where they were in the disease process. So people who had intermittent pain tended to be more early on, and they described it as being sharp. uh, And it kind of came and went and was often related to activities that put some type of stress on their knee. So maybe somebody goes out for a jog or Maybe they've spent the afternoon gardening and pushing on a shovel, you know, loading the knee, and that might bring that on. And then they described that as they kind of moved along and the disease got a little bit worse, the pain would become more constant. And that they described as being more achy and dull in nature and wasn't necessarily related to any particular activities. It was just more there all the time. And then as a further progression, that intermittent pain would come back and kind of overlay on top of the constant pain. But now it would be a little bit different in that it would still be sharp, but it would be quite intense and it would be very unpredictable. So it wouldn't be related to loading the knee. It could just show up randomly. And people describe that as being a bit distressing because they couldn't necessarily relate it to their activities or what they had done. Those were kind of the three groupings and according to disease progression that that came of that. And they were able to create a questionnaire to quantify that, uh, those experiences. And so we did some studies that have used that questionnaire and assessed these different pain patterns in different ways. That's tremendous. Just to dig into that a little bit further, from memory, some of Gillian's earlier work there focused on what was more distressing for the people who were experiencing pain. And again, I think the intermittent experience was the one that was more distressing than the constant background pain. Is my recollection right? I think so. And I think even in the earlier stages, my interpretation of that would be that when you have intermittent pain, and even if you can kind of predict when you're going to feel it, because you don't have it all the time, I feel like when you feel it, you feel it more intensely versus when you have pain that's there all the time, particularly if it becomes kind of like a background pain, I think you habituate to it. And so it doesn't feel as intense necessarily. And maybe it goes up a little bit and goes down a little bit, but it's kind of there all the time. And so you're used to it. But I think it's more alarming to us, like I said, even if we can predict it to suddenly have pain just arrive and be sharp. And even if it goes away quickly, it's still a bit of a shock to our, our nervous systems that way. Now, I guess just one other qualification too, for the comments that you made about what the triggers might be for that episodic pain. Um, This is really about, I guess, trying not to let people think that activity is a bad thing, but it's oftentimes the unusual activity that a person may not necessarily be otherwise accustomed to. And load and activity would otherwise typically be a good thing, wouldn't it, Lisa? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for raising that point. Yeah. So when I'm talking about activities, I'm talking about things that you don't normally do in your normal day to day versus again, that's another part of the constant pain is that it is aggravated by simple activities such as walking. Whereas it takes a little bit more from that for the intermittent pain. So more, more loading, more stress on the joint than you would normally do in your regular course. But again, really important to emphasize that even though there may be some pain associated with some of these things, you're not necessarily damaging your joint. And in fact, it's healthy to expose the joint to this type of loading. It helps with the nutrition of the joint. And so I know that's a bit confusing for people to think, well, why am I getting pain if it's actually healthy for my joint? And that's part of what we're trying to understand and figure out. But yes, that's, it's a really important point for people to hear. Yeah. Now you've spoken a little bit about disease duration as it relates to episodic versus more constant pain. But what are the proposed mechanisms that underlie these different pain patterns other than uh, disease severity? Yeah, so we have looked at what we call, you just referred correctly to pain mechanisms, and that kind of refers to people's nervous systems and how sensitive they are to pain and painful stimuli, as well as their ability to modulate pain. And so we have a number of tests that we do in the lab that test the sensitivity of the nervous system, and that gives us an idea of you know, we are able to compare people, how sensitive their nervous system is. And so we see that people who have a greater sensitivity to pain tend to have higher pain intensity. And in terms of the pain patterns, they're more likely to have that mix of constant and intermittent pain compared to having only intermittent pain or no pain. So the more sensitive you are, not only the more kind of in, intense pain you'll have, but you'll have it more consistently as well. And that makes sense to us because the sensitivity in our nervous system, it actually makes it, it's like the, our thresholds, our tolerance for these different stimuli that might not normally cause us pain are actually lower. And in, in this circumstances end up leading to pain when maybe they shouldn't be. And so there's that kind of, you know, lower threshold or flexibility, if you will, in the, in the system that, that can lead to that. Uh, now, obviously we've spoken about sensitization. We've spoken about disease duration. Are there other factors that might predispose someone to have more constant pain? Yes. So just coming back to this mechanism piece again, the other piece that we looked at was people's ability to modulate pain. And this was a really surprising finding because we had kind of thought, well, if people are modulating their pain, well, they should have less pain. That seems to make sense. But in fact, we found that people who had more constant and intermittent pain actually were the ones who were modulating the most efficiently. And that really kind of confused us at first. We thought, well, that's really opposite to what we were expecting. But 
you know, we were thinking about it and we thought, well, I guess it makes sense if someone is in constant pain all the time, this system that we have that's built in to help modulate our pain experience would be in, fully engaged because of the fact that we are experiencing pain very consistently. So, so that's kind of how we interpreted that, that the more kind of constantly we are in pain, that that would demand our modulating system to be turned on and to be working very hard. Superb, superb. Now, what role, if any, does disease or structural severity play in what you're talking about? Yeah, so that was another thing that we looked at. And, and I know this is always a kind of a controversial point because we always say, you know, pain is not related to your x-ray finding necessarily. And we have lots of studies to support that, that it, they're not very strongly correlated. But what's important to, I think, realize here, the difference is that most of those studies have been talking about pain intensity. And I'll, and I'll talk about that as well in a second. But and pain intensity is very different than talking about whether a pain is intermittent or constant. So these are more qualities or descriptors of the pain beyond intensity, and they give a different you know, flavor to it, so to speak. So what we found, again, was that very much how the people had described, you know, that when, if I have intermittent pain, I've got early disease and and then constant a bit further on and constant and intermittent is, is more end stage. We saw this um, when we compared x-ray findings with this uh, reports on this questionnaire that had been developed. And we found that basically people with more severe change on their x-ray were more likely to report having constant and mixed pain compared to people who had intermittent pain. And th those people had the much lower severity on their x-ray. So that was a really uh, neat finding that kind of confirmed what these hundreds of people with NEOA had told us in the focus groups. So, you know, then we had data to support that, which was great. From Tasha Stanton's episode, season three, episode 19, we learned about some common pain beliefs in people with osteoarthritis and where those beliefs might come from and how those unhelpful pain beliefs might influence a person's acceptance of evidence-based treatments and in particular participation in physical activity. Before we get into looking at pain beliefs and how you might reguide and reframe some of those, what are some of the common pain beliefs in people with osteoarthritis? Yeah, there are quite a few actually, and they're very pervasive. So one of the most common ones that people will have heard and, and many people who don't have osteoarthritis will have heard of is the idea that osteoarthritis is this bone on bone disease. It, it's painful because everything's bone on bone and it's a wear and tear disease at the joint and involves things like, you know, degeneration, changes, pathology. Those tend to be quite strongly held beliefs in people with osteoarthritis that the pain that I'm feeling is because I don't have any cartilage left and everything is bone on bone. And from the perspective of the people that you see, is that coming to them from their lay friends? Is it coming to them from the medical profession? Is it coming to them from other health professionals? Where, where does that perception come from about the description that you just said of bone on bone? I think 
you know, it did originate from health professionals. So that actually is language that we very commonly hear health professionals use, but generally as a society, when we read things about osteoarthritis, very often we'll hear about wear and tear or a degenerative disease, which kind of relates to this idea of wear and tear. So I think actually it is coming from quite a few different sources. And particularly, I think when you have medical professionals that are using this type of language, and I include, you know, doctors, you might have surgeons, you have allied health professionals, like what physiotherapists are as well. I think that medical reinforcement of that type of terminology, it makes those beliefs very strong. What consequences to those beliefs does that terminology have on their acceptance of treatments that we would like to be advocating for? Yeah, I think it has an incredibly important influence because if we hold really strong beliefs that, you know, I have pain because I have no cartilage left and my bones are rubbing against each other and it's this degenerative disease that's just going to get worse over time, it makes absolutely no sense to exercise or to undertake activity. Because when we talk to people who do have osteoarthritis, they'll say things like, why would exercise make this any better? If it's a wearing out problem of my joints, why would doing more activity work? Wouldn't it make it worse? Or like, why is it important if I strengthen the muscles above and below my knee? If it's bone on bone, why would that help? And I think those are absolutely valid things to think. But when we begin to understand that osteoarthritis isn't just about the joint, that it has multiple complex contributing factors that includes things like inflammation levels that can occur due to higher levels of body weight, particularly body fat. It can include higher levels of inflammation due to diet. It can include changes to kind of the sensitivity of our pain system. And when we understand that there's actually multiple different contributing factors and that exercise and activity is actually one of the best things to give our systems a bit of a push, a bit of a, a requirement to adapt and change, then it actually makes more sense why we might be saying, I actually think that you moving more is the most important thing for you to do. I'm hoping that these brief introductions to wonderful content from our international experts provides you, or at least has whetted your appetite for going back to the original episodes and digging in a little bit further to learn about why you might be experiencing pain and osteoarthritis and a little bit more about why that individual experience may be deriving from certain activities that you do or certain beliefs that you have. I'm hoping that you found the content of today useful. And again, hopefully, has encouraged you to go back to the original content that these experts have provided us. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast, for listening today. And between now and when we next speak, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.